We hear a lot about carbon markets and cap and trade under the Paris Climate Agreement, but that doesn't really kick in until 2020. Until then, voluntary carbon markets are one way to get money flowing into clean development. But they occupy an odd spot in the mosaic of climate change tools as companies and countries and even individuals like yourself use them to test new emission reduction strategies and to extend those strategies into still unregulated sectors. Last year, Ecosystem Marketplace tracked its one billionth voluntary carbon offset. But what does this mean and how can we ratchet that up? Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it. We own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we look at the overall health of voluntary carbon markets, which companies and individuals use to voluntarily reduce their carbon footprints by financially supporting projects that reduce greenhouse gas emissions elsewhere, often by saving endangered forests, restoring degraded ones, or helping farmers manage their land more efficiently. My guest today is Kelly Hamrick, who led the creation of this year's State of Voluntary Carbon Markets report, which was released last week at the Innovate for Climate conference in Barcelona, Spain. But first, a bit of housekeeping. Today's episode belongs to the new generation of simpler, straightforward podcasts. I still plan to do packages, which I think provide a great way to tell complex stories, but they take a lot of time and a good sound technician to do right. Until I can afford that, I'm concentrating on generating these simpler, single-issue, single-guest podcasts and then building up a following that enables me to get the kind of technical support I need to do features properly. I'll still harvest these interviews for packages occasionally, but my aim is to get as many interesting and informative conversations up as I can. If you find these helpful and want to help me develop more and better content, then you can like me on iTunes or share me with friends or become a patron at bionic-planet.com. That's bionic-planet.com. I've set the patronage page up so that you can help per episode, but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 cap. If you only want to do $1 a month, then you just do $1 per episode and make that your cap as well. If you go for a $5 cap and I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And at the same time, if I go nuts and deliver 20, you won't get whacked either. The site again is bionic-planet.com. Just click on the link that says become a patron. Also a note on today's sound. My input levels were off a bit in Barcelona, so I I may sound fuzzy in parts. But Kelly's the important one. Her official title is Carbon Program Associate at Ecosystem Marketplace. And I began by asking her if she could offer a quick overview 
of voluntary carbon markets. Definitely. Worldwide, you have different uh, countries, states, citizens, corporations who are concerned about climate change. Uh, and in some places, you have countries who have actually passed legislation that says, okay, you have to reduce emissions by a certain amount. Um, and that's what we would call a compliance market. But there are a lot of both individuals, um, nonprofits, sometimes universities or, or businesses around the world who are under no such obligation, but they're still very concerned about climate change. Uh, and so what do you do? You know, you can reduce your emissions uh, as much as you can internally. Quick interjection here. Internally means reducing emissions within your company or base of operations by, say, switching over to renewables or fuel-efficient technologies, which is what we all have to do in the end. But at some point, the cost of reducing your own emissions becomes probably too high for you to be completely carbon neutral through your own action. Um, you know, unless you're going to go live off the grid as a hermit somewhere, that's just not going to happen. Um, so when you reach that point, if you still want to do more, then you offset. And, and if it's done in the absence of any sort of government regulation, then it's what we would call a voluntary motivation. Uh, and so that's really what we track in these reports, which I think is really cool. It's, it's people and organizations around the world choosing to go above and the beyond and raising their ambition and, and trying to actually address climate change um, and purchasing offsets voluntarily. Right. Now, our focus here is forestry and land use, um, you know, things like sustainable agriculture, stuff like that. And I always find it fascinating how these projects work by helping people, say, by helping farmers become more efficient, as we saw in episodes seven and six. And that works because efficient farmers don't need to chop forests to make a living. But that brings up the whole issue of co-benefits, where people buy offsets not just for emission reductions, but for other stuff, helping poor people, saving endangered species. Can you comment on that? Originally, it probably started out as companies wanting to reduce their emissions by offsetting, and the focus was really on the carbon aspects. But I think since then, the market has really grown in, in a number of ways, and one of which is that a lot of offsets now don't only reduce emissions, but they also provide a host of other benefits. Um, so maybe they help improve water quality in the area or they help protect biodiversity. So I think companies also have sort of evolved a little bit around that as well. And so they're also not just looking to help support low carbon activities, but they also are looking to sort of maybe address other non-carbon goals that they have. I actually did a story on the origin of offsetting, and it started with what we'd now call co-benefits, which I find really interesting, care. Um, you know, the humanitarian NGO, they were looking to raise money for helping small farmers. And then AEG, which is a, a U.S. energy company, wanted to offset their emissions. And this was way back in the 1980s. Uh, I wrote up a story, and I think it was 2015, in an article called Red Dawn. That's red with, with two Ds, Red Dawn on Ecosystem Marketplace. And I, I'm going to do a podcast on that as well because it's really interesting. Um, for now, since I don't know when they're going to kick us out of here, I wanted to get into the numbers, and the big number for me, at least in the long term, is that we did pass the 1 billion ton mark last year. And that's over, um, I'm not sure how many years. <laughs> so we've been tracking this space for over 10 years now. Um, we first started doing an official report back in, the report came out in 2006 and looked at 2005 data, but we also did some research that looked a little bit pre-2005 as well. And it's really great to see finally passing that one billion threshold. The important thing to keep in mind there is that we're tracking transactions where you could have the same offset being sold from one project developer to a retailer and then resold to an end user. So it's, it's 
great that we've passed this one billion point. Yeah. That represents a lot of uh, emissions reductions, but the thing to remember here as well is that it's really one billion uh, offsets transacted, and that could actually be some double counting of actual offsets. One, one offset was sold from a project developer to a retailer and then resold from a retailer to an end buyer. That would be two different transactions. And so I think it's really promising to finally sort of pass this threshold. We need to actually be reducing billions yeah. of offsets every year, and, and we need that to be the actual origination of offsets, not just transactions. Let me just interject for a second to point out that we do have registries, which are to offsets what clearing corporations are to stocks and bonds. They track offsets from creation to retirement when they're taken off the market. If you buy an offset that conforms to a recognized standard and it comes through a registry, it's almost certainly not double counted. But when Ecosystem Marketplace does its survey, they don't have the manpower to check primary and secondary transactions against registries. And their mission is really to speak to the health and liquidity of the market anyway. Now back to the interview. I wanted to go into last year's numbers specifically now. Last year you identified 63.4 million transacted, million offsets transacted, compared to 84.1 million the year before. That's a 24% decrease. But the interesting thing to me is that project developers weren't too upset about this. And as I recall, they weren't too excited about the big years either. Can you talk about that? I think the mark of anyone in this, in this market is that you're always optimistic no matter what. <laughs> the thing with the voluntary carbon markets that makes it really interesting to work on as a researcher, but probably really difficult or perhaps challenging to, to work in as an actual market participant, is that you know there's no, there's no transparency. And so... The markets are continuously fluctuating, um, and we do see over the years. I mean, there's always sort of this up and down variation, um, and it is very hard to actually predict year over year because whenever you talk to these guys, they always say, "Nope, we're doing really great. Mm -hmm. You know, we're still we're still saving the planet, <laughs> one project at a time." Yeah. Um, but yeah, we did we did track a, a drop. Um, that said, I mean, everyone I spoke to within the market didn't seem overly concerned, and I think you had mentioned earlier. You know, a lot of times. Uh, buyers, while we would love for them to purchase every single year so that they would be carbon neutral every year, they don't always do that um, because this is a voluntary purchase. And so it is quite common, I think, for buyers to sometimes purchase one transaction one year and then perhaps, you know, a year and a half later, they get around to purchasing the second transaction. Mm -hmm. But for our reports, that means there's a drop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it could be partially that, but honestly, it's also, there's so many different reasons for why new yeah. buyers enter or old buyers leave that it's really impossible to pinpoint one yeah. clear reason. Yeah. To me, I always find it more interesting to see um, when diving into the report and seeing who's buying and why, mm -hmm. and also looking at the different ways that this tool is evolving. In past years, you did, there was a blend of compliance and, or pre-compliance, I guess, mm -hmm. right? You never, you never tracked, compliance was never included, but you, you had the Chicago Climate Exchange, which were considered pre-compliance, mm -hmm. uh, although they really weren't because the U.S. never complied, but yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then California. Maybe talk a little bit about what this pre-compliance thing is so people don't get confused when they go in there. Definitely. Yeah. So I would say the first, um, I guess I would say like real voluntary market that we tracked was probably the Chicago Climate Exchange. This basically... Um, was an exchange that was set up uh, in sort of the early 2000s back when the EU was getting their compliance emissions trading scheme and uh, some people in the US were saying okay well I think I think this might happen in the US too 
And so there were a lot of businesses that said, okay, well, before we're regulated, we kind of want to get a feel of what, what this market might look like. Mm -hmm. um, so you had the CCX start, and it was this idea that businesses were committing to reduce a certain amount uh, voluntarily, and then they would trade or purchase offsets to sort of meet those goals. We considered pre-compliance because businesses were doing this in anticipation that there would yeah. eventually be a federal cap-and-trade program. And of course, we all know that never panned out. Um, and so we actually did track after that. There was a pretty pretty clear drop right after that, uh, mm -hmm. right after, I think, 2009, where the value just completely drops precipitously. Um, and, you know, and that was just because those market actors were like, well, there's no need for us to purchase anymore because this isn't happening. But then there was California, which truly was pre-compliance. The interesting thing with California was they were starting up their compliance program. Mm -hmm. One of the innovative aspects about that market was that they looked at what was already happening in the U.S. and there had been a lot of voluntary activity, partly through CCX and partly through just purely voluntary actions. And they said, you know, we don't really need to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. There are some already some really robust methodologies out here. Um, to try and help project developers develop, you know, real and, and actual high-quality projects. Um, we don't really need to reinvent this. And so what they did was they allowed projects under certain methodologies or under certain standards to sort of transfer in to the California mm -hmm. uh, market. And so in that case, we did track some pre-compliance activity that happened just before the California market came online, uh, which was also similarly businesses that wanted to sort of dip their toes in the water mm -hmm. and sort of see what trading was all about, there still is potential for, for that to happen in the future, for California to accept new methodologies that have been inspired by innovative work mm -hmm. on the voluntary side, um, which is quite exciting. Yeah, and that was really interesting because I remember when I came into this business and you had the, the CDM existing, and at that point the, there was this kind of this general, this kind of feeling that those were the, the best you know, and, and the voluntary markets came along and they were able to experiment and play and kind of let's try this and see if it works and float it and let a thousand flowers bloom. And then mm -hmm. the ones that survive are the ones we keep. I think they ended up with in many ways, much more rigorous, uh, um, you know, projects. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, or do you, would you agree with that? Then, uh, or do you not want to even, I don't know if you want to go <laughs> I there. I don't, I don't know if I want to uh, cast quality judgment on the CDM. But um, no, I mean, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Like the, the clean development mechanism, which was sort of the compliance mechanism for all these Kyoto Protocol countries, um, that was sort of the, the gold standard. And you had a bunch of companies and, and organizations that wanted to offset, but weren't, weren't a part of this. Um, mm. And so they turned to voluntary projects. And I think voluntary projects at first suffered some, um, some difficulty, some sort of early... Mm -hmm early difficulties getting off the ground um, because you did you did have a lot of project developers who were sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they wanted to go out and do good and, and do mm -hmm. some really cool innovative projects that might not have been accepted on the CDM um, but there were definitely some quality concerns and mm -hmm. I think the voluntary markets in the early 2000s really took a hit um, in terms of how people viewed them and whether or not they viewed them as, as quality projects mm -hmm. and so I think they did prefer CDM and then the standards came along. But and then, that's what, yeah. exactly. But then I think around probably 2006 and seven, you had a bunch of voluntary standards um, sort of arise, usually through NGO consortiums, really to try and address this issue of quality. Um, and since then, I think there's always been a bit of a lag in terms of people recognizing that these are actually you know high quality projects. Yeah. But there really has been a lot done since then with these standards to make sure that um, they're verifiable and that they're third party, um, mm -hmm. you know, sort of. Yeah. Judged. And the procedure for getting there is so complicated. 
You have this long period of peer review within NGOs for establishing the standard, which is basically a framework, ground rules, whatever. Then you have to do the same thing for each specific methodology, which is another set of rules for you know, mosaic deforestation versus frontier deforestation. And in, in, when it comes to developing a methodology, the first mover doesn't really have an advantage because the first mover has to pay for all this stuff. And then others can do the same thing later. So it's a, it's a lot of work. It's very rigorous. But you still have people on the left wanting to say that we're letting companies buy their way out of their obligations. Well, you have people on the right saying that we're paying people for doing nothing, you know, say by not chopping a forest. Um, I remember in Copenhagen, actually, no, it was Durban. In Durban, I was talking to Almir Suderi, the indigenous leader, and I'd written a piece for Forbes explaining that this wasn't charity, that these guys were providing a service, etc. And Almir said, it would always be easier to chop a forest than to manage a forest. And... Um, yeah, you've got that look in your face, like you're itching to say something. Um, I guess the only the only reaction I have is that yeah, I mean I think with voluntary projects because this is something that wasn't regulated. You know, if you're a compliance market, mm -hmm. your big concern is making sure that you have high quality projects that can be traded, and, and you don't want to get into any hot water. Mm -hmm. um, I think the really cool thing about a lot of voluntary projects is if you go through the really painful process of getting a new methodology approved. Um, you can really do some really cool things on the ground. And I think really on the voluntary side of things is where we see more of the small-scale projects or projects that really have to work with communities to reduce emissions, which mm -hmm. takes an awful lot of work. Um, but that's just something that I think has been a, a little bit something that they've been able to experiment with, which a compliance regulator would never want to take the risk on. Yeah. And, and again, as a result of this, you did have this period where... Uh, Governments were looking to that as a pre-compliance, a recognized pre-compliance currency. I find it kind of interesting now what's happening uh, with uh, so many governments now kind of actively supporting uh, lo local projects in the voluntary carbon market. The most recent was the Dutch government, mm -hmm. and they announced this. Uh, they finalized it during the climate talks in Bonn that the, the Dutch government is going to be they're basically going through this period now. They're going to be looking at voluntary carbon projects within the Netherlands mm -hmm. that are under a variety of standards that are that, that are recognized standards and then they're going to put in additional filters and then they're going to actually actively promote them mm -hmm. in for people to individuals to buy them or for cities for any kind of any entity that isn't yet a regulated entity mm -hmm. but when I asked about whether this will be pre-compliance whether these will somehow be be kind of grandfathered into some domestic trading scheme. Uh, Jos Konzainen, who was kind of helped spearhead this, he's a Dutch, former Dutch negotiator, and he said, "No, there's no none of that. You know, this is this is for voluntary. Mm -hmm. um, there's no grandfathering, and they they can't buy something now and then use it. You know, to you know five years later. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have any idea why that this kind of pre-compliance activity is not in fashion anymore?" Uh, um. I mean, so I think I think the reason why we're seeing some countries and states look at trying to support local projects is it's especially in the volunteer markets, it's, it's very attractive, right, mm -hmm. for, for government. You know, this is something that you can sort of if you if you already have the infrastructure in place to say, okay, well these standards are more or less allowed. We're just going to add one extra layer on. Mm -hmm. um, then you can just say, you know, we're not. We, you don't have to put a lot of money into that. Like it's already there, mm -hmm. and it's it's driven by private sector companies usually, or sometimes by NGOs. Um, and so I think it's a great way, you know, you can try and get people involved with these projects that are too complex or just too impractical to include in a compliance market. Um, in terms of pre-compliance activity, 
we might see more of that in the future, but you really need to have a compliance market start. Um, right. So we've had our eye on South Africa for a while now. They've mm. They keep saying that they're going to start uh, compliance at carbon tax soon. But I was writing about, oh, it's going to happen next year, probably three years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's still in the works. Um, you know, everyone's definitely got their eye on China. That is going to be huge once it starts. Um, but of course, you know, the Chinese government is not always the most forthcoming with their plans. So I think once that happens, maybe we would see some significant pre-compliance activity. But um, but honestly, you know, maybe not because. Mm-hmm. China is very difficult to track, and so that's that's yeah. always been the case, I think, with everything. But they do have this history of letting a thousand flowers bloom and then chopping out those that don't make it. I saw that in derivatives, too, where they let these commodity exchanges kind of sprout all over the place, and then they scoop them all together into one or two. And the same thing in these regional carbon exchanges. Yeah, no, so we're, it, it'll be exciting once it finally kicks off the national program. Now, the total value of offsets last year was $191.3 million. Average price was $3 per ton about the same as the year before. But the prices are all over the place, from 50 cents to more than $10. Can you talk about why the big variance? So a couple things to consider. One is with each of these projects that are selling offsets, project size can be an indication of how willing they might be able to go uh, when they're trying how to sell offsets. Yeah. Yeah. It, when Sorry, how, yeah. how low they're willing to go. Yeah, so um, you know, renewable projects typically tend to be pretty big. You've got like large hydro projects in there. You've got wind projects in there. Within forestry, red projects are typically very big as well. Um, but then you also have... And red is reducing. That's where you save an endangered forest. That's where you're trying to avoid any emissions or reducing emissions that have happened. Um, but yeah, it's this really, I think, a bit of a brain teaser. If you're trying to save a forest before it's necessarily cut down, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, as, as you mentioned before when you quoted Amir, that's, that's really difficult because you can have a myriad of different factors yeah. that cause, that sort of chip away at a forest over time. Sometimes it's not just one single thing. Right. But I think, I mean, I always find it fascinating to read the project design documents, mm-hmm. especially in the, in the voluntary markets, because they're really well written and they really make the case well. I remember mm-hmm. in the case of the Suri, what they did is they looked at the pressures on the, the tribe. They mm-hmm. looked at their financial status. Then they looked at other tribes around them who mm-hmm. had been in a similar situation, and all of them at one point were forced to chop part of the forest to survive. They, they didn't want, they didn't clear cut it, mm-hmm. but they were forced to uh, expand their agriculture within their territories, yeah. and they didn't really want to do that necessarily. And they concluded that if the Suri had, uh, if the Suri weren't able to get other financing, they would have to chop this small amount. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. I mean, people think that they're getting paid. For the uh, for the carbon in the entire forest that they own, and that's yeah. not, it's a small, little, tiny sliver. It's really a small amount. Yet they really are, you know, to my mind, they're really um, protecting the whole forest because they could, if they chose to, bec- want to become multi multi billionaires and chop the whole thing and sell mm-hmm. it off. And they've chosen not to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I just wanted to point that out because I think it's important to tell people understand how how mm-hmm. rigorous this stuff really is. Yeah forestry projects in general are a lot more complex. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not simply just a, a technological innovation that you can sort of plop somewhere and then, you know, more mm-hmm. or less you just need to do maintenance costs. Um, a lot of forestry projects really, you have to interact with the communities and um, try to identify different threats to the forest. So I think it's it's a mixture of size and complexity, which will sometimes result in different prices. You know, so for example, if it's a really small uh, afforestation project where you're planting trees, and that's done on you know an individual basis. You have to typically 
earn more just mm -hmm. to keep the project active. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, with the wind turbine, once you've set it up, um, you also can then sell energy and, you know, you've got a new finance source. So yeah. I think some of the dis discrepancies between price can come between those. And then too, it could also be, you know, what the buyer's willing to pay for. Mm -hmm. You know, pictures of trees are, are pretty compelling. Mm -hmm. um, everyone, you know, kind of has a, I think an instinctive connection with trees and with rainforests in particular, you also can sometimes, you know, be protecting endangered species. And mm -hmm. so you have all these wonderful other benefits that, you know, buyers might be willing to pay more for as well. Right. And anyway, and as a result of this, the, uh, the 13 million tons from forestry were about 47% of, of the total revenue, even though they were a small percentage, mm -hmm. relatively small yeah. uh, of, the, uh, of the overall basket. The most expensive or the highest priced were cook stoves, right? Or household de household devices, you called it, no? No, actually, no. It's gases. I said they're one of the most. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's gases? What, yeah. like methane? And I know, like nitrous oxide. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. And I have no idea why, so <laughs> I have no insights that's, there. Well, that's interesting. I yeah. know, that's why I switched to talking about cook stoves. It was also a lower volume. It's mm -hmm. just honestly not something that I've ever really looked into that much, so yeah. I haven't actually followed up with those respondents to see what's going on. Wow, I'm but curious. I wonder how. But that was a recent change because we had a last-minute addition mm -hmm. um, to the data, and the cook stove price used to be the highest, and then it dropped about two weeks ago when I got the last piece of data in. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna have to do some research. I know a little bit about nitrous oxide. Share, share what you find with me. Yeah, it sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm wondering if, on, you know, because on renewables now, because ten years ago you needed government subsidies to get n renewables going and mm -hmm. you needed carbon finance flowing to yeah. get it going. Um, now it's running on its own. Yeah. To get earn money for a voluntary carbon project, you have to show that the project wouldn't have happened mm -hmm. if you didn't have the carbon finance. Yeah. Um, and in the case of renewable energies a couple years ago, that was definitely the case. These mm -hmm. To get these projects off the ground, they needed... Um, carbon finance, and it was just as they needed government subsidies. But now, that whole we don't need to be subsidizing that sector anymore. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I'm wondering if if that I I I, I, don't, I shouldn't really say that because some of these projects may have needed that funding mm -hmm. to go. The it's always like the last ten feet. You know, they yeah. always it's always it's always like they always have funding for most of it, and they're like, how do we how do we top it up? I, and mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering how. Um, how this drop in the price of renew renewables or, or, or the increase in the profitability or the, mm -hmm. the you know, how, how that is impacting the, the demand or its, its place in the voluntar voluntary carbon market mosaic. Yeah, so I think it's difficult to pinpoint exactly because we don't actually ask project finance information for renewables. Um, but I mean, so we do ask that for forestry. And, you know, one of the things that we see with forestry projects is that typically they're not completely relying on carbon finance. And I think that's probably true for a lot of projects mm. in the voluntary carbon markets. You know, the prices have really been fluctuating so much. Um, you might have started your project saying, okay, well, carbon finance is additional and I need, you know, X amount. Well, that was probably more than $5 a ton. That was definitely more than $3 a ton and way more than probably renewables $1.2 a ton. So uh, you do have this problem where I think you had projects that started that really did need this additional financing um, but they are at this point now where they are willing to sell for a lot less. And to your point, that could be, I think, for some projects because they found other revenue streams. Yeah. So for renewables, you know, you can actually produce 
electricity and energy. So, yeah. you know, if they've gotten enough revenue for that, then it might be that they don't actually need as much um, right. money. But mm -hmm. with the regards to the additionality, there are some transactions that we see that are so low. I mean, it really makes you wonder, is there any additionality now? You know, I'm not going to contest that there might have been right. at the time. But, you know, if something's selling for 20 cents a ton, there are usually costs associated with actually selling the offset or retiring the offset that might be, you know, 10 or 15 cents a ton. So you're thinking, how on earth? No right. one would have started a project based on the premise of, I need five cents per ton. Right, right. To keep this project alive. <laughs> yeah. But in, yeah. But in a way, it shows how the, the markets kind of at least help help jump start this thing. Mm -hmm. They, you know, if, if the technology hadn't become uh, profitable, mm -hmm. Then they had a fall. Then they would still need yeah. the carbon finance, so it's good to know it exists. Well, and that's and, and you know that's the optimistic view, right? Is that they became profitable enough that they didn't need this extra finance. The the more pessimistic view could be, well, they actually still really need the finance at larger numbers, but they just can't get it, and yeah. they're willing to take whatever they can until they might go bankrupt. Yeah, no, that's and I know <laughs> so, I've talked to project developers who yeah. were in that state. They were saying, look, we're we're selling stuff for cash flow, mm -hmm. or they're get they. And I know a couple of guys told me. Uh, off the record that and I'm sure others have said it on the record is that they brought in they got angel investors that came in and that's what's keeping them going or maybe they went and they mm -hmm. they turned to nonprofits or foundations and 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 that's the other thing that always gets me too is these guys who are doing these voluntary car especially in the forestry and land sector what they're really trying to do is to is to save a forest they're not out to make a killing mm -hmm. you know I don't see these payments as an incentive because uh, I, I see it as an enabling mechanism. Again, these indigenous mm -hmm. people, if they uh, they don't want to chop the forest to build farms, but mm -hmm. they have to eat and they have to live. And the same thing applies to uh, people who maybe go into a red project in Indonesia where they're they're saving an area that, that could be given over to um, palm oil plantations. They're, from yeah. a purely economic perspective, it doesn't make any sense to do a, a red project when you can do mm -hmm. palm oil. Yeah. Yeah, especially for the prices that we're seeing, yeah. um, you know, compared to what they were probably, you know, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So the next one was cook stoves, and mm -hmm. we're going to be doing a, a, an episode focused purely on cook stoves. Mm -hmm. I know you love to talk about cook stoves, <laughs> but um, we're going to have to pass on this one. Mm -hmm. um, go, go back again to what happened in the Netherlands. Uh, the Dutch government came in, and one thing they're banking on is that people will want to buy local. That they mm -hmm. that if people in cities understand that, wow, I'm actually helping. Uh, I can reduce my emissions by helping one of my fellow Dutch farmers uh, turn his his cow manure mm -hmm. into an energy source. Hey, that sounds great. Uh, not just because they like the the technology, but they like that it's it's close to home and they're helping local farmers. Mm -hmm. It's something you've addressed in the past. Is this idea of buying local? And you say it's mm -hmm. sometimes it seems to be it's like there sometimes and not there other times. But in the report, you do talk about there is. A, a, a tendency to to think for buyers to think about locations right mm -hmm. can you maybe just kind of run with that like what 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 is it like what do they think about when they think about locations yeah so i mean i think <laughs> no one knows exactly what buyers think about and if it did <laughs> this market would probably be a lot larger but um no i think buyers are influenced by location in a couple of ways uh, i think certainly sometimes they do want something that's close to home um, but in many cases, I think they're, you know, it's a mix, right? Because if you want to help out, you, you want to help out probably people who are, who are nearby. On the other hand, I think everyone recognizes that, you know, there are other countries out in the world that need a lot more help. Yeah. Um, and so also, you know, sometimes being in a different country that's uh, low income, 
that's also very attractive. Um, and in other cases, you have it where perhaps it's a large multinational company. Well, maybe they're based in the U.S., but then they have operations in, you know, say Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And so then they're interested in buying from Tanzania for the strong, you know, sustainable development aspects, right. but then also because it's close to some aspect of their operations, but it might not be headquarters per se. Um, in other cases, I've definitely talked to some people who said that they have sold projects to different organizations, and it's simply because, you know, whoever is in charge of the ultimate purchasing power recently went to that country on a holiday, and they really liked yeah. it. Yeah. So <laughs> it can be all over the place. Yeah. No, I, I've always bought from projects. I know it's always been forest projects usually in Brazil and just because I, th I think I think the Amazon forest is a is an important place mm -hmm. um, but now that I've got these connections to Kenya I would love to buy offsets from Kenya I've never I, I also think I might want to buy from the US but only to demonstrate to certain segments of the population that mm -hmm. that you can actually uh, make money by doing the right thing rather than just uh, you yeah. know bringing you can make America great <laughs> again <laughs> without making coal yeah <laughs> uh, great okay well as you as you guys can maybe hear in the background we're they're they're well you can't hear them now they went silent but they're they're dismantling the booths around us and we're we're about to be kicked out so I'm gonna have to ask you one final question is where do you see things going in the future yeah I mean so I guess um, looking ahead uh, you know, so I think there are a couple of interesting things that are coming up ahead that may or may not be related to the voluntary markets, but I think everyone in the voluntary markets is certainly aware of and trying to follow. Mm -hmm. um, so one of those is, of course, um, you know, after Paris agree after the Paris Agreement, you had countries all over the world essentially commit to different goals that they would have to reduce their emissions. Uh, the two glaring exceptions were uh, the aviation sector and the shipping sector, since they operate for a large part internationally, and it's sort of an unregulated air or water space. Um, and so you finally, you have uh, the aviation sort of stepping up and saying, okay, well, we are, we are gonna set our own emissions reductions. Um, they are looking to offsets as a way to actually achieve those emissions reductions, simply because there's, from what I understand, not a whole lot that they can do to reduce emissions within their own operations and practices. Um, and jet fuel, sustainable jet fuel is apparently still very early stage. Um, and so offsets are definitely something that they're looking at. And so right now they're still trying to debate, you know, what, what will those offsets look like? Um, so it could be that, you know, like California, perhaps they'll recognize some methodologies or standards that are, are on the voluntary markets, um, which would open up a huge new source of demand. So that's something that I think we're keeping an eye on. But, you know, as with all politics, it's kind of slow going. And you never really can tell which way the winds are blowing. Um, and then the other thing that we are sort of keeping in the back of our minds is this idea that, you know, you do have countries all over the world starting to make their own emissions reductions targets. Um, what does that mean for voluntary offsetting? Uh, traditionally, you know, if you were buying an offset from a reforestation project in Brazil, then you would own that offset and you could retire it. But what if Brazil wants to count that emissions reduction against their own uh, forestry target? Um, so this is all still very early stage and probably won't be resolved for at least a couple more years, but that's something that uh, I think everyone's sort of thinking about. Um, I attended a session on Monday that was essentially four hours of thinking about it out loud with other people. So um, I can say that there's probably not any real consensus at this point, even with the involuntary market participants, but yep. um, something that definitely bears watching, you know, over the next couple mm -hmm. months and next couple of years as well. Okay. Uh, yeah. One, one thing you've always been very good at, is is recognizing your sponsors do you want to do that now or do you think it's 
I would love to recognize our sponsors. <laughs> um, so our sponsors were the, uh, the World Bank's Biocarbon Fund, uh, Biocarbon Partners, which is a completely separate organization, uh, and Numerico and Good Energies. Mm -hmm. And then we also had our supporters, who we also can't do without, which includes the American Carbon Registry, the Verified Carbon Standard, the Climate Trust, and Baker and McKinsey. Um, and one reason why we really love our partners is because all of our reports are available for free online. Um, and this really helps keep all of this information free. Um, the other reason I personally love them is because it also helps pay for my flights to go to conferences like these and help stay on top of the market. So, mm. <laughs> yeah, so we do appreciate them. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> I can get the more sponsors for uh, for the podcast because that's when I'm, I'm looking to get more, yeah. <laughs> more travel. Yeah. That's a good place to wrap it up. We don't really have much choice there. Yeah, <laughs> so, kicking us out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That about wraps up this edition of Bionic Planet. I've got a ton of interviews from three weeks on the road, and we'll be rolling those out fairly regularly in the weeks ahead. If you find Bionic Planet useful and you want to keep it going, my address again is bionic-planet.com. Click on Become a Patron, and you can offer as little as $1 per episode with a monthly cap. I'm still hoping to get some bigger chunks of change up front to scale this up quickly, but ultimately, I do believe in being listener-funded, because that way, we're all aligned. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick, coming to you this week from Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and next week from Chicago. Thanks for listening. 